0: So, I actually came to Madih poetry the way uh, most people who have lived or traveled in West Africa come to Madih poetry, which is through the sound. You hear it, and you're like, whoa, that is amazing. What is that? <laughs>
1: This is the Ottoman History Podcast, and I'm Shireen Hamza. Has a poem ever saved your life? These poems, which are in praise of the Prophet Muhammad, are known as Madih. In this episode, you'll hear more about madih poetry from Oludamini Ogunaike, assistant professor of African religious thought at the University of Virginia. He'll speak about the many things these poems do for listeners. And of course, you'll hear more of these poems themselves from a variety of reciters. <laughs>
0: People write a lot of medieval poetry in West Africa, and I realized these poems contain uh, some of the most evocative and interesting. Ideas of Sufi cosmology, of even Sufi epistemology, metaphysics, practical spiritual, like wayfaring and advice. There's just a lot in there.
1: Sufism played a huge role in the spread and practice of Islam in this region. Madih poems are recited all over West Africa where several countries have been home to Muslims for over a thousand years. Thus, the dozens of languages of West Africa often share influences from Islamic language and poetics. There are many fusha, or Arabic words, in use in those Ajami, or non-Arabic languages. However, many writers chose to compose Madiha poetry in Arabic because it was the Prophet's own language. And those are the poems that we will be discussing today.
0: So it's it's a transformative performance that uh, aims to evoke this um, perfection of the human state, which is identified with, with, with the Prophet Muhammad. So, I mean, I had heard it when I was a, a kid a, a little bit. I didn't really understand what it was and everything i was just like that sounds cool Mm -hmm. and then uh when i came back and i was doing my uh research in uh senegal especially but also also nigeria um after usually after they uh the tijanis do their kind of evening litany um people hang around and sing Madih poetry sometimes for hours Um, And if you go into the houses of most of the shiukhs, when I'd be going in to do interviews uh, with people, there'd be someone sitting in the corner just reciting Maidiha poetry in these beautiful pentatonic uh, maqams with really strong rhythm. And um, I was just like, this is amazing. This is beautiful. What is it? So I went and introduced myself to one of the um, best reciters that that I, I, I knew there. I said, look, can I record you? This is uh, this is just amazing. I really want to. Uh, I love po- I've loved poetry for a long time. Anyway, but I was, what you're doing is really special. I want to learn more about it. Can you tell me more about it? Can I record you performing some poems? And then as I started, so I recorded the poems and I started working on translating them, and then I started reading more about them, and I realized these poems contain uh, some of the most evocative and interesting. Ideas of Sufi cosmology, of even su- Sufi epistemology, metaphysics, practical, spiritual, like, wayfaring and advice. There's, there's just a lot, a lot in there. Um, and so people often say, like, there's no uh, traditional Islamic, so there's no, like, novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside, like, Haib and Yakdan and stuff like that. But a lot of the things that we look for in novels, a lot of intellectuals, you'll read novels and you find a lot of intellectual content mm. in novels. You find that in in, in poetry.
1: Mm, so narrative.
0: You find you'll find narrative. You'll find um, really complicated and complex uh, ideas and arguments. And and this is I'm saying in madih poetry. Poetry itself is very broad in West Africa. There's a lot of didactic poetry. So you take a book of fiqh and you'll netherize it, as one of my friends <laughs> says. You put it in uh, you know uh, in poetic form. But I'm speaking about madih poetry in particular. Uh, so even though it's devotional poetry poetry in, in praise of the prophet usually, it contains, there's a lot of very profound intellectual content in both the, the content, but also in the function, uh, the, the way it's used. And so that's, that's how I came to medieval poetry as kind of uh, one of the clearest manifestations or some, something within the, the tradition that illustrates uh, in really beautiful and accessible form a lot of the ideas th- uh, that drew me to work on these two traditions in the first place. Mm. On, on, or uh, that drew me to work on Tijani Sufism in, in, in the first
1: place. I see, I see. Uh, so, going back to um, the kind of uh, just some basics about Madih yeah. poetry, this is mostly written in Fusha, Arabic.
0: Madih poetry is written in uh, Fusha, mm-hmm. it's written in Ajami, so it's mm-hmm. written in Hausa, uh, Wolof. Yoruba, uh, 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 any almost any. I can't think of a West African language that has a lot of Muslims in which there's not Medih poetry. But in my paper, I focused on Arabic Medih poetry because I only know so many lang- <laughs> languages, and the Arabic tradition cuts across uh, all of West Africa.
1: That's a lot of languages. <laughs> Listeners can find another interview with Professor Osman Khan on intellectual history of Islamic institutions in West Africa, especially madrasas, in which he describes a r- particular relationship between Arabic curriculum, which was the major curriculum in the in the madrasas, but also the prolific writing, not only in popularizing genres like uh, qasidas that are meant to kind of bring people to Islam, but also like tafsir Mm -hmm. or exegetical traditions, which are, you know, very long, (laughs) involved texts in Ajami. Uh, So I think if you'd like to uh, listen more, you can find that episode. But in this genre specifically, um, could we hear a little bit more about the relationship between Arabic and Ajami?
0: So the Arabic actually prosody really influenced the prosody of these Ajami traditions. So if you look at um, pre-Islamic or non-Islamic poetry in in these languages, there's usually not end rhyme. Uh, the meters, the idea of meter is different. Um, so in Yoruba, for example, there's um, several different genres or types of things that we would call poetry in English, but they look very different from Ajami, Yoruba Ajami poetry, which is you know, you've got the two bait, the, the two misras that make a bait, and you've got the end rhyme and you've got the meter. Um, so the Arabic prosody itself heavily influenced, and Arabic itself heavily influenced these these languages in all kinds of ways. So it's not just Muslim speakers that use Arabic words in these languages. Anybody who speaks Yoruba or Hausa or anything like that uses. So there's a massive, the languages, um, uh, influenced each other, and Arabic, especially, influenced, uh, influenced these West African languages. Now, the uh, tradition of praise poetry, in terms you asked about a hierarchy of languages, so the Arabic poetry is, uh, everybody appreciates the sound of it, but not everybody understands the, the meaning, so the, peop- the Arabic uh, poetry is written by scholars, usually, uh, for scholars, scholarly audience, Primarily, but then also a general audience who will recite it even if they don't understand everything um, in it or understand it well. Sometimes the, uh, there'll be these called macaronic poems in which they'll mix Arabic and uh, local languages. So you have one line in Arabic and then you'll have another line in Wolof or Hausa. Um, so cool. And it's, it's this is true in India too. There a oh lot of. Yeah, um, I was just going to yeah. say,
1: yeah, it reminds me of Kowalis, which exactly. have a line in Farsi and then exactly the line a line in, in. Uh, an Indian language, yeah. usually like Urdu or Proto Hindi or exactly. something. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a very, very similar thing um, going on here. The poems in uh, Ajab, you know, Wolof, Yoruba, Hausa, um, these kinds of languages tended to, they, could, they were written by, sometimes by people who are non-scholars, they're also written by scholars. But usually when the scholars are writing in uh, Fulfulde Hausa, or, or these languages, they are either writing personally, just for themselves. So for example, some of Uthman Fodio's most personal and I think best poetry is in Fulfulde in his, his mother tongue. Um, and when they're writing in Arabic, they have a broader audience. Um, or Uthman Danfordio and his community, when they'd write in Hausa, they were writing to kind of educate the masses. That was the language of most people. When they wrote in Fulfulde, they were writing just for themselves. And they were writing in Arabic. They were writing for a broader public. Mm. Um, so there's a sort of hierarchy. The languages have different functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can sometimes see uh, differences in genre and tone uh, in, these, in these different languages as, as, as you move um, across them, but they also interestingly influence each other a lot. So some of Danfordio's Arabic poetry has a lot of Fulfulde poetic features. So in Fulfulde, it's good poetry if you end each line with the same uh, word. So he has this famous qasida Dalia," which ends every line with Muhammad. Every line, it's Muhammad is the qafia, is the rhyme. That's considered bad for you're cheating. You know, it's it's a cheap rhyme in uh, in um, in, in Arabic prosody. It's good form to begin every line, like Qasida Muhammadiyah, is, is, begin every line with Muhammad. Um, so he's using something from uh, Fulfudei poetry uh, in his Arabic poetry. These different genres and languages influence and even interpenetrate uh, each other in some really fascinating ways. And this continues to this day. One of my favorite and the most celebrated West African poems in praise the Prophet, uh, Ali Dali is an 18th century uh, Mauritanian Sufi Sheikh scholar, commentary on the Quran, Maliki Faqi'i, very, very influential figure in, 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 in the region and even beyond. Um, wrote this famous poem, Salatu Rabbi, uh, it's a poem in praise of the Prophet. And it's in Fusha, but he wrote it not using one of the classical meters of Arabic poetry. He wrote the story. He says he was walking uh, one day and he heard some of these uh, griots, mm-hmm. Igawin, mm-hmm. singing this song. And he was Oh, that's such a beautiful song. I want to write a poem in praise of the Prophet to that
2: tune. <laughs>
1: It really gives you a different sense of the role that this poetry can play. We could hear the sound of the room. We could hear multiple reciters. Can you tell us a little bit about the reciter?
0: Reciter Sidi Ali Nias is uh, grandson of Sheikh Ibrahim Nias. He's um, the son of Sheikh Naziru Nias. Uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas was the, um, one of the most influential uh, Muslim scholars in West Africa of the 20th century. died in 1975. Founded a movement called the Faida. It's a branch of the Tijaniya order. It's now become the most popular branch, um, especially in Nigeria, but it's spread throughout the world.
2: Before
1: we listen to this recording, you explained that Ali Adali, as well as Osman Dan Fodio, to 18th-century Sufi scholars, composed this poetry, sometimes in uh, in Ajami, in West African languages, influenced by Arabic, for the purpose of spreading the knowledge uh, that they that they embedded therein, or drawing people to the faith, which is a very similar discourse mm-hmm. about South Asian Sufism, and local or vernacular language poetry. Um, there's also another motivation, you said, for them to often to compose in Fosha, both for a general audience, but also to communicate to a scholarly community.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Could you tell us about the, um, the way that you came to understand that through reading these poems or listening to these poems?
0: Um, so I think, actually, you put your finger on uh, something very important here, the importance of listening to these poems. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who sits and reads poems these poems quietly. They're usually sung, and they're usually sung in groups. And sometimes even they're composed in the context of group recitation. Uh, so people will be singing a refrain, and then people will compose verses in the same meter and rhyme of, of that, that poem. So the context of the, the poetry um, is, is, is very important. But I also think that the, the, the the authors themselves say the primary reason for the composition of this poetry is devotional. It's out of love for the prophet. And then, as a means to help other people achieve that that kind of uh, love for the prophet, it's this idea um, generally, rather in, in Arabic literary theory called lisan al-hal. So there's a, the call. This the statement comes out of a particular hal, a state, which then gets kind of encapsulated, captured in that poem, and then gets released when it's when it's performed in both the, both the performer and and, and and the listener. Mm. So that's a lot of what's going on here. The the poets. Uh, by their own account, have this intense longing and love and will compose these poems as a devotional practice um, to express their love for the prophet, get closer to the prophet, ask for forgiveness of sins, and then that poem will serve as a means of doing all kinds of other things, uh, doing work for um, the, the audience. Yadali's poem, for example, he, in, in his commentary on his poem, he tells a story, so he wrote this poem, and uh, he got in some trouble with someone and he recited this poem and the person loved it so much he gave him some new clothes and didn't, wasn't trying to fight with him anymore. Or another time he was on a, a boat that was going to be shipwrecked and he and the sailors recited the poem and they reached shore safely and the people were so happy with him and his poem for... Uh, achieving this great feat. They carried him into the city on their shoulders, and he was able to get a bunch of uh, European paper, which was a very rare, very expensive commodity. Mm. And he says all of this is due to the barakah of the one praised um, in this poem. So the pe- people are composing the poetry, I think, primarily as a devotional act. But in that devotion, they're bringing in a lot of uh, their ideas, cosmology, and it's then being used for purposes of barakah, for purposes of dawah, for spreading uh, these these ideas uh, and these Sufi traditions.
1: It's really fascinating that Al Dali is composing Arabic commentaries on his own poems. Mm-hmm. I think it tells us something about the way he wants it to circulate among the scholarly community, that there are ideas within it that are kind of what we might call the cutting edge, mm-hmm. Um, of this intellectual tradition, it also this anecdote that you tell us from the commentary, in addition to the structure of the poem, is evidence that this poem was meant to be recited. Yes. The story you told us from Ali adali's commentary, in which he describes being brought to safe harbor mm-hmm. through the baraka of a Madih poem. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us about the many ways that you see the w- this these poems doing work?
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is a really important feature of the genre and i think one of the biggest reasons why the poems are so popular is the way in which they're used so the border for example in nigeria people use it to as like a love charm people use it uh, for success in business and of course most famously to cure cure illness and these dimensions again um get classified in the scholarship as kind of superstition or this kind of mythological thing around it, which is the only way they fit within a certain cosmology, which is why it's very important to consider the cosmology of the authors and performers of the poem themselves to understand, because it's not illogical given a certain semantic theory of the relationship between the signifier and signified. If it's not arbitrary, if there's an ontological connection, then certain poems about the prophet actually... uh, bring the presence or carry the presence of the Prophet with them, which is how, I mean, the whole Sufi tradition basically works on dhikr, the presence of the madhkur in, in the dhikr, the, the one invoked in, in the invocation. That's how the whole thing works. Um, why reciting prayers on the Prophet does something. Uh, why, and that's the same reason why reciting these poems is understood to uh, vehicle the presence of the Prophet in in certain ways, which again, only makes sense given a certain theory of language, of literature, and cosmology. When they were forming an imamate, there was a kind of revolution um, by al-Mami Khan, they swore allegiance to him on the Qur'an, on the Dalal Khairat, collection of salawat, and on Fazazi's Ishriniyat, this collection of 20, 20 verse poems. People keep the poems in their house for protection. People carry them with them when they drive for protection. Um, and I say they function kind of like hilyas, you know, this is the Ottoman history podcast, so this, you guys should know all about hilyas, the descriptions of the prophet's appearance, um, in which there's a hadith, uh, which is popular even if it's not authenticated, that whoever looks on my description with longing uh, will be saved, it will not face face the fire. So these poems often, in describing the prophet, Serve as a kind of uh, oral hilya, description of the Prophet that induces a state of of longing that has this kind of salvific effect. A lot of the poems are just very eloquent forms of dua, of prayers for intercession. A lot of them function as dhikr, and I'd like to play this recording of uh, Zakiru leading uh, dhikr in Medina (laughs)
2: Bay. so that the in
0: there you could hear the poem interspersed with an invocation of the shahada la ilaha illallah. Um, and this serves as a kind of extension of the m- ordinary practices of dhikr that you have, where people say the wirid or the wazifa or, 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 or these kinds of things. And it functions the same way dhikr does. The, the invoked is supposed to be present in the invocation. Uh, that presence is what allows someone to progress along uh, along the the, the the spiritual path towards God and, and, and or the prophet. And the poems also serve as a kind of a... Um, uh, description but a way of making the reality of the prophet present or uh, evoking that reality within the soul of the reciter and the listeners. (laughs) So within Sufi cosmology in general, but especially the Ak- Akbari and Tijani uh, cosmology, the Hakikatul Muhammadiya, Muhammadan reality, or Nur Muhammadi, Muhammadan light, is the fundamental reality in everything. Mm. So It's a bit like the idea of Buddha nature. Everything has its own Buddha nature. So the, the reality of this table ultimately is the Muhammadan reality. And what this poetry serves to do is to evoke that. And that's true of uh, each person as well, too. The, in essence, each person deep down is the Mohammedan light. Uh, the uh, Mohammedan reality is latent within each person and is their fundamental reality. So by describing this reality in evocative terms, it aims to evoke that reality in the, uh, in, in the listeners and in, in the reciters of, of this poetry. So it's, it's a transformative performance that uh, aims to evoke this um, perfection of the human state, which is identified with, with, with the Prophet Muhammad. And this perfection is described in lots and lots of different ways, but it's ultimately described as being so transcendent, it transcends its transcendence, in that it's capable of taking, and this is where the Sufi um, kind of metaphysics and theory is, is, is so important, and that it can take on any form. So if you want to transcend visibility, you have to uh, be like a mirror, which means you're capable of taking on any color, or like a glass of water. A glass of water can take on any. You put fuchsia on it, you get fuchsia. You put, um, And so this is in Sufi literature called the maqam la maqam. So we're following Ibn Arabi, the station of no station. It's precisely a station of no station because it's a station that's perfectly receptive, becomes capable of taking on any station. So it's just completely... Uh, non-delimited you can't even say it's non-delimited because that's to limit it somehow Mm -hmm. Um, so they often say that everything has a particular maqam ma'loom known station except for the human being and the human being has this potential for infinite receptivity mirroring the divine infinity and, 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 and transcendence and so these poems describe this state in a lot of different and interesting ways and try to put people into this state and eventually make that state their their station. And that station, that kind of ends, the end goal of this poem, of this genre of poetry is usually annihilation in the prophet, Fanaf Rasul, what Mm. they call. this kind of mystical experience of union with the reality of the prophet. And so this, when you have this kind of um, Sufi metaphysical background, literary theory background, I think you can understand a lot more what's going on in these poems because that was the background in which the authors were operating in and writing these are the texts they were reading and you'll pick up a lot of illusions in the poetry that if you weren't coming with this background you would completely you would completely miss mm. and this is brought out often in the commentaries on the poem especially the oral commentaries some of these crazier Sufi ideas. I mean, some people say I shouldn't be even saying these things. I was actually going to
1: ask
0: you. <laughs> I shouldn't. I shouldn't be saying these things in a in a podcast that's going to be openly distributed yeah. Uh, yeah. to to people. But often in these uh, commentaries, um, the oral commentaries are where we get the really juicy stuff, mm-hmm. um, the really interesting stuff that uh, people wouldn't normally put in in writing because mm-hmm. they're afraid people will misunderstand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people aren't ready to hear it. Because mm-hmm. if you hear, okay, your essence is at your very essence you're the Muhammadan light. So I don't have to pray anymore, I don't have to fast, everything's all good. Um, I can just run around killing people. That's it, there's no consequences or things like that. So these these ideas um are difficult to understand. Not everybody can understand them. They can be dangerous. Um and moreover they just they can be very controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, oftentimes you'll get, you'll find some of these ideas in oral commentaries uh, that people have, or if you know enough of them yourself, when you read the poems, you'll see it. You know, you'll recognize uh, allusions to those things uh, in there.
1: In order to demonstrate some of these very complex but very necessary cosmologies with which people would be reading, reciting, and learning this poetry. We're gonna listen to a recording of Cherno, the friend of Oludamaniz. Could you explain a little bit about this poem?
0: So this is a poem by Sheikh Remnas, uh known like most poems by its first few words, Safali Awakti, um, and it's a poem particularly uh, loved by the uh, kind of more esoteric Sufi um, uh, scholars, um, and disciples in sheikh Ibrahim's uh lineage because it's it illustrates a lot of these these themes that we were talking about so let's take a listen <laughs>
3: بذكر المقفى مر هم القلب والنفس رسول سما فوق السماوات إنه دلافت دلوا وفي حضرة القدس.
0: Here's my uh, translation. I'm sorry, it's not very poetic. Uh, he purified my time for me, and he made sweet my intimacy by the mention, ذكر, of the followed one, the salve of heart and soul. A messenger ascended above heaven, and he drew nigh and descended, or drew near and then drew nearer, while he was in the holy presence. At a time when there was no servant and no thing other than him, and nothing remains of meaning and nothing remains of sense. And that is the truth, and he or it is our God. He is the truth, none but he remains to the dust of the grave, save ignorance and false fantasy. So purify a heart from jealousies and fantasy and conjecture.
3: And where is apart from the Holy,
0: and where is his equal? Leave the where. Rather, ask where is the knowledge from that foundation? The Holy is not seen with the naked eye, but rather with the eye of blindness and obliteration and annihilation and effacement. So get drunk. For whatever you may have intended, you have only tasted of wine and voice, but sound and a whisper. If the drunk dances or gets carried away singing, that is from ecstasy. He is being sanctified from confusion. Whatever we say about drunkenness is for us knowledge too lofty to be bound in pages. For every station, if only you knew, there is a saying. So not equal are the rational thinker and the mad brother. Going astray in the essence of God is the essence of guidance. طلال بذات الله Really amazing verse. So beware of the dangerous criticism that leads to sorrow. So the knowledgeable give everything its due, while he who is ignorant denies a thing, though it be more evident than the sun. Upon him be the blessings of God, and then his peace, and upon his family and companions. In reality, they are my joy. There's a lot there, and I think if you go back and listen to or or read this poem with uh, this kind of Sufi cosmology or metaphysics in mind, as I tried to do in this article, The Presence of Poetry, you will see how this poem and many other poems illustrate and allude to in striking and very evocative forms Um these ideas about the Muhammadan reality. So, for example, there's a time when there was only him and, and, and nothing else. Uh, annihilation in God, annihilation in, in the prophets. Um, the uh, idea of a knowledge that can't be contained in, in, in writing. Uh, also, the idea of this transcendence of transcendence. The, so the prophet drew, uh, it's a direct quote from Surah Najem, He drew near and then drew nearer or drew near and mm-hmm. then descended. Mm-hmm. Um, both and he uh, ascended above heaven and then drew near and then drew nearer. So you have this transcendence and then a kind of descent. Mm-hmm. But that descent is in itself also drawing nearer. So you're not mm-hmm. descend- in descending from the divine presence. You're actually drawing nearer. You're not going further away from God. You're drawing nearer to God. Uh, where, and then, as he says, where where is apart from the holy? And I said, leave aside asking the where. Where does not, where doesn't enter into the discussion of of, of divine realities. Mm. But rather, what's what's important is, is is the knowledge that comes from this journey. If you read this poem through a kind of uh, Akbari Sufi framework, a lot of the allusions uh, become more clear in the argument of the poem. Um, becomes uh, more clear in which you're kind of following in the footsteps of of the messenger uh, up to heaven back down you know on the the mirage up to heaven back down and then in uh, in the world
3: yeah
0: um, but all without ever having left the Haduratul qudsi the, the the holy the divine presence Allah Allah
3: Allah 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 mm-hmm. Allah, Allah, Allah. Mm-hmm. Allah 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 Allah
0: So these poems, they take the classic structure of the Qasida and they transform it in very interesting ways. And like all of the best poetry, they bounce back and forth. And there's a wonderful ambiguity uh, uh, and elusiveness between the levels being talked about. So sometimes we think they're talking about uh, a physical, historical reality, they're talking about a metaphysical one, and sometimes we think they're talking about a metaphysical one, they're talk- because they're really talking about both at the same time. Mm. And they're often talking about the physical places as uh, manifestations of metaphysical realities, just as they're talking about the historical prophet as a the... Uh, manifestation par excellence of the Muhammadan reality Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so when you have this cosmology and this kind of knowledge of the literary theories of the tradition you can follow them as they do all of these fascinating and understand, get a better idea of all of the fascinating things they're doing the ways in which they're transforming the structure of the Qasida and why they're doing it that way and how it relates to their particular context of spiritual practice
1: Okay, so this is a great transition question um, about some of the contemporary mm-hmm. reciters yes. uh, whose work you've been listening to throughout the podcast. So would you like to tell us about your own encounters, your um, your decision to record, how that was received, you know, the context within which these are recited, and maybe like a few figures who you've really enjoyed listening to? Uh,
0: zakiru. I'm not sure if I heard him the first time I was in Senegal, but um, one of the first times I was in Senegal, I heard someone reciting the Qasidas of Sheikh Yas, and it just really moved me uh, tre- tremendously. I didn't really understand what he was saying, but it was the, just the sound musically it moved me. And then I came back for my um, uh, dissertation research, and I heard something similar that reminded me of, of what I heard in Dakar a couple of years ago, and... Um, I went in to his zawiya, um, of uh, Baba Lamin, who's one of Sheikh Remya's sons. Um, and uh, there was a young man there uh, who was reciting poetry, it was after the wazifa, and it was exquisite. And I wanted to catch up with him, but I had an appointment, so I couldn't. And then I was in uh, Kaulak later on, and I heard him again reciting in the maqam at the grave of Sheikh Remyas. So I went up to him immediately afterwards, and I said, hey, I love your recitations. Would it be possible for me to record you? And he said, Yeah, no problem. When do you have time? Yeah, so I just um, went through and I was like, Can can we record some of uh, your favorite poems of of Sheikh Ibrahim? And so we we did that. And in the meanwhile, I talked to him and I said, So you know, how did you come to do this? And he said, I love love the poetry of Sh- Sheikh Ibrahim, and I have a good voice. I have a gift gift for this. And he said, He's the official reciter for this. Baba Lamin, who's a very big big sheikh. And so he said, Baba Lamin was coming to my town in Nigeria, and I really wanted to to be his reciter. I wanted to be recognized. So I prayed this many prayers on the Prophet the night before and did this, and then it was my chance to perform in front of him, and I made sure I did my best. And he said, people were going to Ahwal all over the place when I was reciting, and Baba Lamin said, yes, I want this guy to go. And so he brought him with him, and now he travels with Baba Lamin. Uh, back and forth between Kaulak and Dakar, and when he travels internationally, sometimes he goes um, along too. Um, so he is a professional reciter of uh, Sheikh Remyas's poetry, most of which is Medih. Um He can do other things too, but that's his. Those are the hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other person you'll see if you go to the West African Sufi project, West African Sufi Poetry Project. Um, website is um, a friend of mine, Cherno. Uh, Cherno's also a, a, a Tijani. And he studied in Egypt for a long time. And he himself is a poet. And he also loves Sheikh Bermias's poetry. He can recite in several different styles. He, he's, I think he spent some time studying in Mauritania. So we know some Mauritanian styles of recitation. There are loads of Nigerians everywhere in West Africa, but also in Senegal. So we know some Nigerian styles of recitation, as well as Senegalese. Styles and because he's a poet and loves poetry, we would often have discussions about Sheikh Rebnias's poetry. He taught me a lot, and uh, so I asked him if we could record some of these, which we did in Professor Khan's apartment in 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 Dakar. And this actually brings me to something I meant to discuss before, the way in which the West African, or the Madi tradition in general, but the West African Madih tradition in particular, takes on and transforms the formal features of the Qasida. So as some listeners may know, the Qasida usually has a kind of, the classical Qasida has a tripartite structure, in which you have a nasib, amatory prelude in which you the poet laments the... the um, the ruin, at the ruins of the Beloved's campsite and describes the beauty of the Beloved and uh, the passing of time and uh, the, how the love is wasting him away and the tears are running down his cheeks and all this, the beginning of the Borda, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Is, is like many of these other poems are, are like this. And this is true for the, pre, the pre-Islamic mu'alaqat mm-hmm. um, as, as well too. And then this next section, which is the Rahil, which the poet sets out on a journey, usually in pursuit of, of the Beloved. And then finally, the, the third section is one of Madih, in which poet praises the beloved and himself. And it's a, usually a moment of union or reunion, a kind of sweetness. Um, and so these three sections, Qasidas differ a lot from place to place, but they generally tend to have these kind of three sections. And the West African Madih tradition being one of the more conservative uh, forms of Qasida because most of the people who are trained... Uh, the scholars read the muallakat; mm-hmm. they read these classical poems. So there's a kind of um, archaism in, in in the in the way a, a lot of their their style. They keep this, but they transform it. So mm-hmm. the beloved is now the prophet, mm-hmm. and the ruins, the atlal, the campsite is uh, often Medina mm. and the area around Medina and the different physical features around Medina. And then the rahil is the spiritual journey. In, of following the Prophet through the different levels of reality, through different uh, maqams. But these poems often go back and forth between this kind of the metaphysical and the the, the physical. So, in describing the Prophet, they'll go back and forth between describing this Mohammedan reality. It was the first thing God created, this light, and then, and he also patched his sandals. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this kind of movement, interesting movement back and forth between the historical Muhammad and the Mohammedan reality or, or Mohammedan light. Um, and then in the praise section, which is a section of union, they'll usually describe their union or their state of union with, with the prophet, and in doing so praise themselves as they're praising, praising the prophet. One of my favorite examples of this uh, transformation of, of the genre, Sheikh B'am has a poem, which he wrote in Paris. The, the beginning opening section describes the lights of a discotheque in Paris the story goes that uh, they put him up in a hotel that was looking over a discotheque mm-hmm. and then when some of the disciples or people organizing his trip realized they said, oh my god we put the Sheikh above a disco this is terrible we need to move him and sheikh Ibrahim said no 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 the lights and this remind me of the beauty of the light of the Prophet so he takes that the lights and the city of Paris with its old castles and ruins and things like that. that's the campsite and they remind him of the days gone by and Uh, the prophet and he's burning and longing for the prophet and then he sets off on this uh, airplane trip to Medina and as he's ascending in the plane he goes back and forth between his ascent in the plane and his travel to Medina and his ascent through the spiritual stations and his travel to the station of no station which is the prophet station Um, and then he comes to Medina uh, itself and there's this beautiful praise to the prophet in his uh, physical and spiritual union with the prophet.
1: I wanted to remark briefly on how this uh, structure of poem, commentary, super-commentary, abridgment is so prevalent in so many different genres, um, mm-hmm. why are scholars composing commentaries on their own poems?
0: Yeah, So y- you have to situate this in the broader context of the West African Islamic intellectual formation, the the way in which these scholars were trained. And a big part of the way in which they were trained was studying poems and commentaries upon the poems. So this is true in things like fiqh, but then this is also true in, in terms of devotional poetry. So poem the mm-hmm. Ishriniyat, which is by a 13th-century Andalusian scholar who was a friend of Ibn Arabi's Al-Fazazi, and it's a combi- it's called the Ishaanat because it's a collection of 29 20-verse 20 poems. Each poem ends with a different letter of the Arabic alphabet. This is so popular in Nigeria that, and uh, in, in Nigerian Islamic education that people it's kind of one of the culminations of Islamic education in the region. They say you're not really a scholar until you've studied Ishriniyat with its commentaries. That's when you, because it brings in so many sirah, Quran, hadith, um, even some fiqh, uh, and a lot of cosmology and um, metaphysics as, as well too. So it's, the commentaries are what um, they point out and explain the allusions to all of these things in, in the poem, but then also use them as a jumping-off point for deeper discussions of, let's say, the or sometimes even fine points in law, uh, Islamic history, all kinds of different things. Mm. This Studying poems uh, and commentaries upon the poem was an integral part of uh, Islamic West African, not just West African, but especially Islamic West African inju- education. So people would study uh, Ka'b ibn Zuhair's Banat Su'ad, People would study the Borda. Um, people would study Busiri's Hamziah. Uh, people would study another set of, um, this time, 21 verse poems, uh, 29 of them, called the Witriyat. Um, and so these, these poems were widely not just performed and recited, but then also studied and commented upon. Uh, and com- There were commentaries upon commentaries of, 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 of these poems.
1: Were people mostly studying locally composed commentaries in the Madaris?
0: It's a, a mix. We find a mix of both. So we find um, uh, the ones th- that are most extant in the the manuscript collections. Uh, we find mostly local ones, but then there there are some famous um, commentaries that we find from, let's say, North Africa that that are popular. Um, and then we find a lot of abridgments of commentaries, especially in the 20th century. So you have a commentary written elsewhere that's abridged, summarized. Mm. One, another one that's really popular, it's not poetry in praise of the prophet, but Al-Yusi, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. who you may have mentioned in uh, Professor Rehib's uh, podcast. Yeah, sorry, Al-Yusi, uh, 17th century Moroccan polymath, Sufi, uh, logician, brilliant thinker, wrote a famous poem in praise of his sheikh, uh, al-Dalia, it rhymes in the letter Dal, um, and wrote a commentary on that, Nehla Lamani. Um, and it's a very extensive commentary. Um, and it was studied, uh, it's pretty popular in the West African manuscript collections, and it was studied as a treatise on Sufism.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, so it's a praise poem, mm-hmm. but the poem and its commentary are studied as a work of Tasawwuf. Right. Um, both practical and theoretical. And so this this was a tradition not just in West Africa, UCS Moroccan, North African, mm-hmm. um, and but it's it continues in into West Africa and continues to the present day. There are YouTube videos, for example, we mentioned Sheikh Ibrahim Yass, There uh dozens of YouTube videos of people giving commentaries in Wolof or Hausa on Sheikh Nias' Arabic poetry.
1: What I find so engaging about this is that you could not have pieced together this both historical and contemporary curriculum without both manuscript research and engagement in the contemporary uh, environment of Islamic studies. Absolutely. The manuscripts work that you're talking about, I believe that like myself, many listeners may be less familiar with manuscript research in Islamic studies in West Africa I guess, why, if this poetry is so prevalent among the manuscripts, like why has it been so ignored?
0: it has been a great work. There's the um, Arabic Literature of Africa series, which is a multi-volume series inaugurated by John Hunwick. A lot of people have contributed to it, which is a first foray into it, an attempt to cata- uh, catalog the extensive Arabic manuscripts of, of, of the region. Uh, and it's an incredible, if you're a researcher who does anything to do with West Africa, it's an invaluable resource. And even if you don't work on West Africa, because there are connections between the West African intellectual uh, scene, Islamic intellectual scene, and everywhere from North Africa to the Hijaz, the, the Ottoman, uh, Turkish world, um, even into India uh, in a later period. So it's it's an invaluable resource uh, if you want to see who's studying what where and what manuscripts are going where. Um So that there's also um, Bruce Hall has been working on a West African manuscript um, archive that's searchable online. If you look at any of these collections, medieval poetry is very prominent um, in them. It's amongst the most prominent uh, genres, most well-represented genres everywhere. So the reason I think medieval poetry has been understudied has to do with the particular ways in which uh, the modern West has developed the categories of the intellectual, the literary, and the devotional as kind of uh, separate. There's a lot more overlap between the literary and the intellectual and the devotional is kind of seen as um, something separate.
1: Something some maybe to do more with practice than with theory or with knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's religious as opposed to academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know a lot of these categories don't exist and the same boundaries don't apply. There are different boundaries, different categories within different intellectual traditions. So the idea that devotional poetry is not literary; it's rather something that has to do with religious practice, is well. I I think it's absurd anyway, even in in the Western context. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. John Donne, I mean, John Donne one of I think the greatest English poets of of all time. The metaphysical poets are amazing; they write devotional poetry. William Blake, I mean, the, so. But there there is this kind of idea of a separation of the devotional from the literary which a lot of the scholars, especially the early scholars who were working on West African literature, had. And so they would tend to view Medih poetry as um, something devotional, not literary. It's not expressing personal feelings, which is bizarre if you read it, it very clearly is expressing feelings, but it's kind of repetition of stock tropes and ideas that just serve a simple devotional function. Also, then the, devot- the separation of the devotional from the intellectual. Nothing could be further from the truth within the Sufi tradition. A lot of the early scholars who were coming at this literature had these ideas that the devotional is, is something different from the intellectual. And they tended to look for um, prose treatises And sometimes these kind of didactic poems, that's where the intellectual work is going on or the commentaries. And some scholars, the early scholars, even classified most of the West African medieval poetry as lacking any real literary uh, achievement which I think has much more to do with the training of those authors themselves than with the actual qualities of, the, of, of the, the poetry.
1: Personally, myself, preparing for this interview and listening to some of the examples that you have on the West African Sufi poetry database that you've built, which listeners can find on our website, this is really gorgeous poetry.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And I think part of the problem may have been also that they were um, looking at the poems in manuscript form and not hearing them. Mm. So there's some things that you can't hear. So acrostic poetry is a big thing in uh, West African Madi. They love doing acrostics. It's harder to hear. Um, it's easier to see. Each, the first letter of each uh, verse will spell out something. Mm-hmm. So they'll have an ayah of the Quran. Uh, one poem, uh, 20th century Senegalese poem takes the Salatul al-Fati, famous prayer on the, of, on, on the Prophet. And the first letter of each verse spells out the the salat al fatih one uh, son of uh, um kunti a uh, very very prominent uh, 19th century uh, qadiri uh, sheikh but his 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 son wrote i call it a 3d poem so if you take the first word of each of each verse it makes another poem in meter and rhyme so the first word of each verse and I think it's like, uh, I forget how, it's a 107-line poem, I think. And then that makes a poem of 20 or 21 lines itself. And the same is true with uh, the the first word of the of the second misra, the second hemi-stitch. It forms another separate poem, also in, in, in meter and rhyme. So it's this kind of amazing 3D poem. And that's not something you can hear. Uh, you can only see that, but um, a lot of the beauty of the poetry and even some of the features that are regarded as being defective in Arabic prosody, they work really well when performed, mm. and and you can you can hear it. Um, so I think that's that's an uh, it's perhaps another reason why uh, that's led to the lack of appreciation of this genre. But I I do think the main reason has to do with these categories that the devotional is somehow not literary and and not intellectual. Once you kind of get rid of that hang up and you can look at uh, devotional poetry perhaps a bit more uh, uh, objectively, you'll see there's loads of intellectual content. That's why it, and that's why so many commentaries were written upon it and um, uh, continue to be written and spoken uh, upon it, and why it's part of why it's such a popular genre in the region and elsewhere.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. I had a great time.
1: This has been a really exciting interview in which we covered many different topics. Uh, Listeners who are interested in finding out more can look at the bibliography on our website, ww.automanhistory podcast.com, in which Odo has very graciously provided us with several titles where which readers can follow up with if they're interested.